welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. On today's show, we have an interview with a filmmaker and former radio whiz kid about a one-of-a-kind station, WBCN in Boston, made radio history doing the kind of radio most people these days would consider only possible on the non-commercial side of the dial. The station reached wide audiences by combining rock music and radical politics, including news and reporting on activism and anti-war movements, alongside live in-studio performances from the biggest names of the 60s and 70s. WBCN hired fiercely independent radio DJs who were empowered to play the music they wanted to play, the music that they cared about. Our guest on today's episode of Radio Survivor was there, starting out as a young teenager in the early 1970s. He has a new documentary about the radio station and its place in the tumultuous history of the Vietnam War era. Radio Survivor is a program that covers the world of non-commercial radio, community radio, and college radio, and radio history. And, you know, it's a rare occasion that we focus on a commercial radio station, but this was a special occasion. There's this documentary that's out, and it, it's a one-of-a-kind commercial radio station. It really has a lot of... Uh, a lot of its values and a lot of the ways that it made radio has a lot in common with Community Radio. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. My name is Eric Klein. With me today are my co-hosts, Jennifer Waits and Paul Rees-Mendel. Joining us on the line from Cambridge, Massachusetts, is Bill Lichtenstein. He's the filmmaker behind the new documentary, WBCN and the American Revolution. Thanks for joining us here on Radio Survivor, Bill. You're very uh, welcome, and it's great to, to be here with you. Some folks may have heard of WBCN. It's a fairly storied radio station, especially in the annals of freeform radio. But I'm not sure everyone has. So maybe to start off, Bill, can you tell us what was special about WBCN and special enough that you felt the need to, to make a movie about it, to make a documentary? It's an amazing station, but particularly the uh, – which went off the air in 2009, but particularly – the early years of the station, it dramatically changed both radio and, in a lot of ways, the world around it from about 1968 to 1974, in that window when, when we were all going through uh, so many tumultuous changes. And so it just had a huge impact. Um, and so telling the story of the station, I thought, was important, and it also overlays the story of the 60s and how we got from Top 40 Radio and uh, a quieter time to the upheaval of the 60s and up through Watergate. So can you g- tell us a little bit more about, like, wh- what made the station different? You know, what? how did it How did it stand out, you know, say, in, in the city of, of Boston at that time, right? It was based out of Boston. WBCN came along in 1968 uh, in Boston uh, at a time when uh, the Summer of Love had just happened in San Francisco and, and New York had the East Village scene, which was sort of the beginnings of the youth uh, psychedelic revolution. But in Boston, despite having 350, 400,000 college kids in some 80 or 90 schools, Boston was very conservative, and there were very few real signs of that revolution that was about to happen. There was both you know, a social and political and cultural. Um, and into the middle of this came a Harvard Law student named Ray Reapin, who, through a, a weird set of circumstances, ended up 
uh, with the lease on a synagogue in the south end of Boston and decided that what he wanted to do with that was to play rock bands there. And so everybody from the Velvet Underground to the Who to the Grateful Dead to uh, Led Zeppelin and then these great blues artists uh, played there. It was the first rock club uh, outside of the Fillmore West in America in 1967. Um, and he quickly realized that all these bands that were packing the place uh, could not be heard on the radio. So uh, in the wake of a couple of stations, one in San Francisco and one in uh, New York, that were experimenting with playing rock and roll on the FM band, which was a new development. FM brought uh, you know, a, a band that was both stereo and without static, which was mainly being used for classical uh, music. Uh, people had started playing rock and roll on FM, but but Ray had this vision of a station that would be populated by announcers who were not professional announcers. He saw everything about radio at that point, Top 40 Radio, as being what he called ugly radio, and that you would play album cuts, and you would have only no more than eight commercials an hour, and only for good sponsors. We wouldn't take any uh, national ads, and it would just be a wholly different sound and he created he drove around boston listening to these college kids on the air at their college stations hired a bunch of them and initially got just the overnight hours from 12 midnight to six in the morning from a failing classical music station boston concert network bcn um at the time and within weeks it was a sensation because suddenly you could turn on the radio and my god there's robbie shankar there's the Beatles, there's Bo Diddley, there's you name it, you know, uh, Firestein Theater. And it was just something unheard of in the city. And with that many college students, it was really just like lighting a fuse. And so, um, that's how and, it, and it went on from there. Uh, that's so fascinating to me, Bill, that you're talking about this revolution that was happening in freeform radio all over the country. Um, and also that college students were being recruited from nearby college radio stations. Did you, when you're doing the documentary, did you learn much about what the local college radio scene was like and, and what those stations were playing? Cause I'm curious if that had an influence sure. on, on this sure. early WBCN. Sure. Well, in Boston, and they talked about uh, specifically, you know, being on the air at the MIT station or the tough station and suddenly this guy like walked in the studio and said, you know, without announcing himself and said, hi, I'm getting me a big radio station. He was from Kansas city. Right. <laughs> and, and sort of full of himself, you know, hi, I'm getting me a big radio station. Uh, we, any of you guys want to be on real radio? And, but you know, the, 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 uh, style of radio in those days was very, uh, buttoned down. And, and really, if you were on the radio first, um, there was no, sort of cross-mix of music. A lot of college radio, is, as remains in a lot of cases today, was, you know, they'd have two hours of country music or two hours of classical music. And so you, it was sort of very segmented. But more than that, there was a pressure on people on the radio to sound professional. And, you know, Ray's belief was he wanted anything but professional. He wanted conversational. And what's interesting is... um you know, if you think about it, Tommy Hadges, who was one of the original announcers, says in the film, uh, you know, the big difference was we were seeing radio as less a performance 
and more a relationship with our listeners. And if you think about it, going back, Top 40 and the BBC and, you know, radio was always like a performance. Here's Guy Lombardo from, uh, you know, the Waldorf Astoria Hotel on New Year's Eve. And, and this idea that somehow when you talked into the microphone that you had a relationship with your listeners and it was a two-way conversation, you know, you, they would call you and you would, uh, you know, talk back to them. And this was all new and, and the whole sound of it was different. And, you know, it quickly sort of became adopted in a lot of different ways. But this precedes public radio by, you know, this is a couple of years before there was an NPR and uh, public, you know, PBS. And I think this style, which we take for granted these days of when you're on the air, you're kind of, you know, we're all in this together. That really was something that kind of grew out of, in a lot of ways, BCN. Yeah. Bill Lichtenstein, your film about WBCN, you're, you're describing now that it was a real, it was a real revolution for the DJs on that station at that time in the, in the late 1960s to have this, uh, you know, intimate relationship with the listeners and to have fun on the radio. And then you've also described that, um, the owner of that station was recruiting college radio DJs to do that work. So, I mean, I think what Jennifer was getting at is like, was there already sort of an existing looseness on college radio that WBCN brought to the, um, to the professional FM airwaves? Uh, no, <laughs> uh, because when you, when you talk to the, the really the, the, you, you would, from what I, it, it was a little before my time, a few years, uh, literally just a few years before, but from the interviews I did and my recollection of it was you would get on college radio and you would work your way up, you know, being on air and what shift you had, uh, by how professional you sounded and professional in the traditional radio style. In other words, you give the time and temperature, you'd say something about the music, you know, it would sound professional, like you would expect radio to sound. And, and BCN wanted anything but. It was play whatever you want, say whatever you want, interview whoever you want. It really was, the, the emphasis was to break down those walls initially, musically, and then not long after that, because the draft uh, related to the war in Vietnam became such a heated issue, it quickly got very political. And suddenly you had this cauldron of, of really radical news and public affairs and uh, music, and the emphasis was to sound anything but. I mean, and there were people who were recalled who were there for a short time, uh, and I've asked, you know, what happened to Uncle T? What happened to uh, this person? Oh, Ray thought they sounded like ugly radio, and, and ugly radio meant uh, anywhere else, you know, high-quality professional radio. On BCN, that's not what they wanted. It wasn't your voice or... Uh, it, it was really just, you know, your your knowledge of the music and the counterculture, those two things in the beginning, and your ability to relate to other young people who largely were the audience. Yeah, and one of the things I learned from your film, WBCN and the American Revolution, is that, uh, you know, probably sparked right around that same time, you know, was the counterculture in Boston. And, and so much of the narrative I think we hear typically is about Haight-Ashbury in, in in San Francisco or maybe about Los Angeles, sometimes about New York. And I, I will say myself, I was largely ignorant to uh, the kind of things going on um, in, in Cambridge in particular, right, or in the Boston Common. And that, that this is, you know, these two stories – uh, the stations and and the counterculture's sort of uh, development and explosion there in Boston are kind of 
really, really knit together. And I, I wonder if you could talk more about, you know, that political engagement, like how did that come about? And, and, and really from, from a, can you, can you characterize to some extent, you know, what did that, what would that have sounded like on air? Because in, in, in the contemporary era, we're very used to sort of music is in a box at this time. Politics are in a box at this time. And certainly in, in community and college radio, there are political DJs who, who try to express politics through their music and such, but usually not particularly intertwined necessarily with what we would call news uh, very often. It, it's still relatively rare. What was it like in WBCN then? Sure. Well, and, and let me say first off that it was very, uh, you know, everybody was aware because everybody had a third class FCC license that there were certain lines uh, that had been drawn about obscenity. Well, right. Uh, and and, and I, I'm going to interrupt Nixon. you real quick because I think what a lot of folks don't realize is that, you know, at that time in the late 60s, early 70s, in order to actually be a DJ, you had to have a license from the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, that requirement went away in the 1990s. But, I mean, I have one from my radio days in the 80s. Uh, you know, it's no longer a requirement. So, But, yeah, it is definitely true that every DJ who was on air there had to have a license from the Federal Communications Commission. It's just no longer a requirement. Right, and it goes. It went back to like the Second World War because when you were on the air, I, I was on the air uh, on the overnight. So when I was there, I was literally not just picking music, but I was operating the transmitter. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to a time when radio transmitters, uh, you know, had a uh, overlap with uh, radio communications from ships at sea, military uses, and you know, so you were in a big, um, you know, playing field with a lot of very serious things going on. And so you had to be licensed by the federal government if you were, you know, the person signed on uh, at that time. And so uh, if there was one person on the air and they were the only person in the station, you know, that was you. And, and in fact, the test you had to take to get an FCC license wasn't about, you know, who wrote this song or the things you would expect you would ask to get a radio license. They were all about, you know, sort of military uses of radio. And it was just an arcane thing. But yes, uh, you know, and so the FCC, uh, you know, regulated uh, language and, and there was a big push to, to rid uh, the music of drug references that the Nixon administration saw were uh, co-opting and, and, and uh, you know, having an influence on young people. And, and, and so, you know, what became very important, and the film talks about it, is the issue of um, free speech and free expression. And it really started with the idea that, um, you know, people were being asked to go to Vietnam and engage in this war that people objected to whether they liked it or not. And many of them would go and, and not come home because of the, you know, uh, the, the American body count was, was going up there. And as people began to speak out against it, uh, whether it be in the media or publicly, there was a lot of pushback. And so the idea of free expression, not unlike today, um, you know, in a lot of ways, became a very important issue. And so people at BCN were always aware of it. Um, and as Joe Rogers, one of the original announcers, says in the film, you know, we were aware of the rules, and, and we broke all of the rules. Um, this was a time when the Rolling Stones were on the Ed Sullivan show Sunday night and turned on the TV, and they made Mick Jagger change the words from let's spend the night together to let's spend some time together because spending the night together with somebody was, was, you know, uh, you know, verboten, uh, unless you were married, of course. So um, for some of m- the, 
What were some of the risks that you guys took on the air at, at WBCN? Uh, were you playing well, naughty things? <laughs> Well, it was. Yeah, I would say it was. It was. There were naughty things. We were one of the first stations to play. We would. We would gravitate towards whatever was naughty, and you know, a record would come out. It would be uh, a new John Lennon album, and "Working Class Hero," uh, you know, was a song on it, and, and the F word, of course, was in there. And immediately, you know, uh, there was an interest in playing it, and so, uh, and a lot of them, uh, we could be together. The Jefferson Airplane. Some of them were buried in the music wall, so that if you didn't know it was there, you wouldn't know it was there. But it was there. And so playing these songs on the radio not only jeopardized the station's license, but you could lose your license as an announcer. You could lose the ability to work in your field. You could be fined a lot of money. I mean, there was a lot of risk being taken, and Ray recounts being pulled down to the FCC every once in a while, you know, being asked what kind of a deal he's running up there was when he put it. But, um, you know, it was, it was really more about, there were those, uh, I'm sure people today are familiar with moments, whether it's Saturday Night Live or the Stephen Colbert show or, or whatever your political bent might be, you're watching something, uh, and somebody just nails an important point. You go, yes, you know, they've said it on TV. And there was just a lot of that. And at the time, there wasn't much elsewhere where you could hear the kind of direct opposition. Uh, to Nixon, to the war, and uh, all these other um, issues that were just starting to take off, the second wave of feminism and the whole role that women had in society, uh, the gay and lesbian movement, um, the civil rights movement was still on at that point. You know, all of these issues were in play, and BCN, you know, sort of went to bat for all of them well, in very direct ways that you wouldn't hear other places. Well, in what ways were those? I mean, that, that's what I'm trying to kind of want to get a sense of, right? Because I, I think people generally think of music radio and talk or news radio being very separate things. And, sure. and so how how did that play out? How did how did this merger happen at WBCN? Well, it, well, it it was just it was just the organic nature of the station. So let's look at the second wave of feminism because that, I think, is an important part of the story. Uh, early on, the station, as many college stations in those days, and there were people who told me they literally heard this, uh, you know, at college stations when they were, uh, you know, working at them in the mid-60s, later 60s, um, you know, sort of follow the rule that uh, women don't belong on the radio, that their voices are uh, too high and annoying, and, and they're just not, you know, when you have just the voice, it's, it's really not something that's suitable for radio. And it was an argument that was used to keep women off the air uh, for a long time. Uh, as announcers, as newscasters, uh, there was an incident, uh, and it was a case where BCM was not as PC as it thought it was, in which somebody made a reference to uh, a drug program that needed volunteers, and they asked if there were any doctors uh, who might be able to help. And they said, if you're a chicken, you can type. Uh, they need your help, too. And needless to say, there was a woman who's in the film who was part of the uh, early days of Bread and Roses, who became the legendary feminist collective, uh, who loved the station, but she and a group of her friends uh, barged in on the station the next day with a huge box of baby chicks, and they dumped them on the desk of the general manager, and they said, those are chicks, we're women, 
and they called the Boston Globe as they were doing it, so they got a lot of press from him. And BCN almost immediately got the point. Uh, the first thing they did was they gave them an hour of airtime to do uh, Bread and Roses Produce, was probably the first women's broadcast uh, that you could find anywhere. They looked at um, you know reproductive rights. They looked at uh, domestic violence. They looked at all the issues that were still. Hey, Bill, when you say probably the first women's broadcast anywhere, do you, what are you referring to specifically? Because I mean, we've on Radio Survivor we've talked about how um, before broadcast radio became a national, uh, a, a nationally uh, a business like a national broadcast business. Locally, there were women's voices on the radio in the 1930s. And I know Jennifer's work has uh, talked a lot about how college radio has always been a place where women's voices were heard primarily on the radio, um, you know, like outside of the commercial radio landscape where you were referencing the sexist tropes. Well, it wasn't just that that there were women. These were the women who formed Bread and Roses, who gave us our bodies ourselves, who became probably the most important feminist collective of that era. More importantly, it was a point in time when probably the most important thing going on uh, for women were consciousness-raising sessions, where they were, for the first time, getting together just women to share their uh, views about a lot of these things. And a lot of them had never been voiced before. Um, and, you know, and, and they would tape them and put them on the air. And so you would hear things like, you know, why is my boyfriend's job so important? What about my job? And, and you, could, you could feel the early sparks of that era. Bill Lichtenstein, you are the filmmaker, a person behind the documentary WBCN and the American Revolution. And I think, you know, a key component here in radio often, right, is that there are there's commercial radio and there's non-commercial radio. And especially at the time that we're talking about, we're talking about, you know, the 1968 through about 1974. Um, we did not have uh, a sort of uh, well-established public radio system in the United States, right? It was before NPR really existed in 1968. Um, and, you know, there sort of parallel tracks, but, but, and, mm-hmm. and so, and, and what's sort of interesting, I think about WBCN, right. It's, it's, it's a commercial radio station, which, you know, in many ways at the time was behaving like how we associate non-commercial radios, particularly commercial community uh, radio, yeah. particularly college right. and, radio. And so a lot and, you of know, in Boston, Boston, Massachusetts did not have a Pacifica affiliate station like New York City or Los Angeles. No, and BCN quickly became one of the top grossing stations in the country. Uh, I mean, they they were making money hand over fist, and yet they retained their radical nature. And in fact, up through towards the end, I want to give the end away, but they they moved into these very fancy digs in Boston, and um, you know th- there was a point when. Uh, you know, and they were making a lot of money. The, the ownership was, and yet they retained their very radical, uh, you know, persona. And people yeah, were, were concerned about that. That does seem very unusual to have a, a very radical station be a commercial venture. Why do you think it, it succeeded there in Boston? I think because it became a brand before. People talk about branding all the time. Now, BCM became a brand before there were brands. And the brand was a place where people knew that they could speak and be heard. And so all of these, you know, uh, seminal, uh, landmark, important, 
revolutionaries from that period, you know, Angela Davis, uh, Bernadine, um, Bernadette Devlin, you know, who went on in Irish politics, who was part of the IRA. Abby Hoffman would come by regularly. Ann Sexton would come by at three in the morning to read poetry. I mean, people knew that, that they had a voice on the station and it attracted people. And, and then when once, you know, that in turn fueled people's sort of allegiance and interest in the station because it gave them a voice. It, it, they, they formed this thing called the listener line because it got to the point where there were so many calls that they had people actually answering the phones and, and they would quite often, you'd call with a question, suddenly you'd be on the air and it had this very interactive kind of quality to it where people felt like it wasn't this radio station up high, uh, but it's like, we're all in this together. And that was always kind of the tone of the station was, you know, uh, you know, what, what's happening out there and, and what do you know? What do we know? And, um, you know, on, on, at a time when all of these issues were transforming very quickly and were very important to people. Bill Lichtenstein, it, it sounds like what you're describing to me, which is exciting, is that this was a commercial radio station in the Boston, Massachusetts radio market that functioned in a way that we now in 2020 uh, consider to be only commuter radio can do this thing where we interact with the audience, where we open the phone lines, where we have DJs that care about things personally, that they have passion, and then they share those passions with the listeners, that they can play whatever they want. These are all things that uh, now um, don't exist on commercial radio. And what was exciting about that radio station, WBCN, was that they were they were pioneering this work. They were doing this work uh, before anyone else on the radio that they had heard uh, was doing it on commercial radio. Uh Bill Lichtenstein, you uh, you worked at the station. What is your personal relationship? What is your history? Because you're the filmmaker and you, um, you're you not a character in the documentary. So we'd love to find out what your personal relationship is with the station. Sure. I mean, I'm in a few photographs sort of spilled throughout. But, um, I, you know, the station went on the air in 68. And soon after, just everybody was listening to it. And in 1970, I was in this alternative educational open classroom program in Newton, Massachusetts, and they told us all one day a week to go get a volunteer job. I called the station and was fortunate enough to call them right after they'd set up the listener line, and we're now trying to figure out how to uh, populate it with people to answer the phones, uh, you know, 16, 18 hours a day uh, on a volunteer basis. And, you know, I called and said, you need any help there? And they were like, yeah, you know, come by. And, and it had a quality that it's uh, many community stations that I've visited have, which is like somebody will walk in the door and it'll be like, hey, do you guys need a poster? Or, you know, and the answer, sure, come, you know, come on in. And it, it, so many people ended up there, I found out later in making the film, just by calling and going, Hey, I'm interested in being on the radio. You know, could I come by sometime? And it, it just had a very inclusive kind of feel to it. And so anyway, so, I went up, I interviewed. Old, so Bill, how old were you and why did you call? Well, I called because I, I loved radio. I'd grown up just loving radio. But, but, you know, for all of us who loved radio prior to 1968, it was top 40 radio. And fast talking, you know, the, the Boston was WMEX and Arnie Woo Woo Ginsburg. And, but I loved radio and I loved music. And, um, uh, you know, so I went up there and I uh, ended up starting off uh, one day a week coming in to answer uh, the phones on Wednesday morning. And then after a few weeks, uh, the person 
who was the news director, who called himself the news dissector, Danny Schechter, the news dissector. Danny Schechter, the news dissector. <laughs> Danny Schechter is the author of, of, of a well-known book to people who, who are critical of the media system called... Oh, um, yes. The, the more you watch, the less you know. Yeah. And he, he lived his life through, you know, uh, the uh, sort of all forms of media, and that became his thing. Danny was really... It's very common these days, you know, to turn on the TV and there's somebody doing a critique of some media outlet and what the language they use or what... what uh, you know, uh, experts they, they go to. And Danny was really the first to look at media as something that you could kind of tear apart and that it had an, an attitude and a perspective. And But um, uh, so Danny just started. It, it was all him doing the news, and there were like two or three newscasts a day. And so he said to me, it take this, it was one of those old Sony tape recorders with the piano keys on the end and uh, cassette recorder. He said, take this recorder and go up the street and there's a demonstration at the Boston police station about the murder of this Black Panther, Fred Hampton. He said, push the red button and ask people, why are you here? Which, of course, was the perfect question for a 14-year-old going on in their first news story. So I went up the street and, why are you here? And, and then he said, did you get anything good? I said, well, there's some, you know. So he showed me, literally brought me in the production room and showed me how to cut tape. And I started cutting stuff up and... Um, and that's how I, I began doing a lot of stuff that was, um, I was very influenced by, uh, Scoop Nisker. I don't know if you guys know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Scoop, Scoop, um, took like actuality of Nixon and music and, uh, comedy and, and he mashed them up into these very clever montages that by the way they were put together would give you like a greater insight into the story. And he was brilliant. And, and I heard them and became very influenced by that kind of work and started doing sort of similar work in Boston where we would take, you know, stories and cut them up with sound and, and music and comedy. And, and so I started doing that and eventually not long after was asked if I wanted to do an all night show, what I would do at the time and, and ended up on the air with a weekly show. Bill Lichtenstein, I have to have you repeat your story because it just, um, I need to underline it, and I want to hear you say. I want to hear you tell it to me again. You were 14 years old when Danny Schechter, the news dissector, who was the news director at WBCN, the commercial station in Boston, in the early 70s, sent you out on your first assignment in radio to a protest where they were uh, they were protesting the assassination of Fred Hampton by the police, and that was your first work in radio at age 14. Yeah, and then the next thing I did was it was a march, and we and all, like the high schools and the junior high schools would go along on these marches. Our schools were, you know, uh, oftentimes would close down and would participate in these demonstrations. There was a march in Cambridge where a group of demonstrators broke off from the main march and ended up breaking into the building that was the Center for International Affairs. It was Henry Kissinger's. Uh, office in those days, and Dan Ellsberg worked out of there, and and they ransacked the place. And I actually called the station once I was inside, live on the air, and did a live report of, from inside the Center for International Affairs as it was literally being, you know, ransacked and files being cabinets uh, being uh, broken into. And there's, I found one piece of tape. I found we didn't use it in the film. Was uh, there was a riot over at MIT protesting uh, all these factories that used this rail line uh, in those days to build uh, weapons for Vietnam. So right by MIT was Sylvania 
Raytheon and all these companies, and they would bring in and take out, uh, you know, the goods on these train tracks. And right after Nixon had uh, blockaded Hanoi on Christmas Eve by blockading Haiphong Harbor, which was an international crime, unless it's an, you know, an act of war, you can't go blockade somebody's, you know, harbor entrance to a country. And so Nixon did this, and the response was that Jane Fonda was involved in organizing was to tear up these tracks in Cambridge to make it harder for them to bring in, you know, supplies for their war business. And um, uh, the, we did a report right afterwards, and I interviewed a guy who described how he was walking down the street and a, uh, a, um, a pig with a dog came walking by. And, you know, I played it for an intern recently who said, uh, a pig with a dog. And of course, in those days, you know, it's what police officers were routinely, uh, who were seen as being, you know, on the, the side of the enemy and, and the Vietnam war machine, uh, were referred to as the pigs. But, you know, that was another story I covered was this MIT, uh, uh, you know, demonstration. So yeah, no, I was out on the streets covering stuff. So were you in junior high or high school at this point? Uh, I would say, like, in high school. Like, uh, junior high went through ninth grade. So I was probably in 10th grade, 71. That's just amazing. So you were starting to tell us that you got an overnight show when you were, I'm guessing, 14. So that seems very radical for a 14-year-old to have an overnight radio show at a commercial radio station. What was that like? well, I just found out why, you know, I was called in at the time and I, I was spending more and more time at the station and producing stuff for, for on air and starting to do commercials and public service announcements. I was called in by the program director who said, you know, we've been talking and we'd like to give you a shot at being on the air and what would you do if we gave you this four hour shift? And, but I didn't know the, the backstory until recently. This is now 50 years later when the general manager, Al Perry, who's in the film, told me that there was apparently a meeting where everybody sat around talking about how to BCN, you know, was widely listened to in the colleges, but they were looking at sort of expanding uh, even more into high schools and junior highs and, you know, what sorts of things might be of interest, uh, you know, to, to kids of that age, 12, 13, 14, 15. Um, and one of the announcers, Charles Laquadera, sort of gave his views on that, uh, and apparently, I don't remember this, but Al says, I said, no, that's not it at all. <laughs> and gave them what was essentially, you know, my view of, of, of why kids listen to BCN and what BCN should do. And, and he was so impressed by it. He said to Norm, you know, we should give him a show. <laughs> so Bill Lichtenstein, you, there you are. You have a, a radio show on WBCN in the middle of the night on a, on a commercial radio station in Boston, Massachusetts, that is you know, in uh, according to your film, like the biggest deal in this town, what was that like? And what, what did you do with your show? And then I guess how much, like what, what did management have to do with anything that you made? Like how much was it yours to do with what you wanted? Oh, it was totally, I, I think it was a hallmark of the station that, that, you know, you be allowed to play and say what you want. And, um, you know, and so I, I played albums. I, I produced a lot of kind of audio art where I would take things and mix them together. Uh, we did interviews. Um, if there were, you know, Firesign Theater came up at one point, 
Grateful Dead. Um, I mean, those were just like amazing, uh, you know, moments. Um, and it was fun. But one interesting thing, you know, I don't know how much of this is true for other people in other stations, but it, I think from making the film and talking to people who are in the middle of it and then talking to listeners and bands whose careers the station profoundly uh, positively affected by playing their music on the radio. I'm not sure that we really knew or understood the impact that we were having yeah. on, on music, on culture. There's a moment when John Scagliotti, uh, who came to the station with his partner, Andy Kopkin, uh, they were gay, and John says, you know, this was a very early uh, experiment, um, you know, in, in having this kind of a mix of people that were women, white, black, gay, straight, you know, and we, we all worked together. We all got along together. And, and John said, you know, he said, I'm gay. And so we did this in 1971 or 72, uh, the show called the lavender hour, which was just about gay life and music. And, 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 you know, it didn't occur to them that this was not something, you know, that would be sort of revolutionary. And he said, but suddenly, you know, and I love the line. It's John. He says, "Suddenly, there's this gay thing on the radio, right. and you can hear it in New Hampshire, in Western Massachusetts." He says, "And it's like fifty thousand or a million watts or whatever. You know, it's out there." And and I think that part of it, not all of us fully appreciated. A lot of it, you know, you're in a studio, you're playing records, uh, you're talking on the air. You know, you don't have that sense. I mean, we knew a lot of people were listening. But I would see it every once in a while. I was walking with my dad down the street once, and there was a store that was playing. It, was, it went on all the time. People would play BC and out the, the door or out the window through speakers. And I heard a spot that I did as we were walking by. Or, but I don't think really until I did this film did I appreciate the full impact that that station had on people to the point where to a person, anybody who grew up with it can tell you like literally when they first heard it and why it just kind of changed their life in some way. Yeah, Bill, you know, I think that you 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 are hanging on to something which I think is is a very common experience for, especially for folks who have been involved in in college and community radio or in those special unfortunately way too special and way too rare commercial stations like a WBCN which was there in in Boston because you know, radio when you're when you're making radio as a DJ, especially especially when it's free form, it, it, it can be it's it, it's a group experience because you're there with your your compatriots at the station, but it's also sort of solitary, right? And and you do get feedback through the phone, but it's hard to gauge, you know, really that impact on on you don't know if it's tens, hundreds, or thousands of listeners at any yeah. given moment, right? And I, I certainly have had a similar experience. You know, I did community radio in central Illinois in and around Urbana-Champaign, uh, where the University mm -hmm. of Illinois is. And I did that for many years. And and the impact didn't really settle in on me. You know, maybe the, one of the first times it really settled in on me is when I, you know, met uh, a new volunteer at the station who was probably 16, 17 years old, who grew up in a very small town, relatively far away, right? But had been so turned on to an entirely different world because he had access to our station, WEFT, on the radio. And he had found it, and he said, it's a bit of a secret amongst kids my age, but it, it changed 
his perspective made him want to do radio in a way, and he felt like it put him very out of step a lot with his peers in in the small town, you know, uh, in in central Illinois, right? And and mm-hmm. I think that's sort of uh, you know I relate to that, you know, of, of how probably some you know gay youth, you know, heard this show in Western Massachusetts in 1972, who, you know, otherwise had almost no exposure to, to any sort of uh, media that legitimized his or her experience in, in the same sort of yeah. way, you know, and, and the interesting thing as well, and I think is why we have this sort of, uh, sometimes we have a, it's not really a problem, but B- radio is this local medium. This is something that my wife, uh, Ellen Knudsen, pointed out to me as we watched your documentary together. Cause I, you know, to me, and I think you, you heard us sort of uh, respond a little bit, you know, earlier, we, we mm-hmm. you know, there's this tendency sometimes to make these claims about a station like WBCN or a KPFA or a WBAI or any number of other stations that they were the first station to do this. or there was no other station around. And like I and Jennifer and Eric, you know, we're, we're historians of this. We pay a lot of attention. So we know about all the other stations. But when we talk to people, we've, we've learned about them over the years. Well, we I, do. Right. You know, but I'm, I'm just saying, I, right. We, we've learned about them. I definitely want to put myself in no, the camp. Of, sure. Fine. I didn't know last year what I know this year. Yeah. That, well, we're, that's we're an all exciting learning. part of making this podcast. Right. We're all learning. Mm-hmm. But when we but when we talk to folks at stations and Jennifer's talked to folks at many more stations than either Eric or myself and I know I think you've had this experience Jennifer if you ask them what's special about their station they'll tell you it's not there's no other station like it which on the one hand of course is true because it's sort of like fingerprints it's kind of like snowflakes every every community or college station is in fact different but Often mm-hmm. it's hard right. when you're working at these stations to have that perspective or to even know well, about the fact that there's another city with a station that's more like yours <laughs> than others. I mean, well, but the thing, yeah, is, the thing about know. BCM was it, it was it was wired it was wired backwards. If you take a community station and you say, "Look, we want it to be more successful," well, what's more successful? Let's say more listeners, more wattage, and and uh, uh, Oh, I guess why did you don't change, but more more listeners and and more revenue. Okay, uh, the direction most stations would go in uh, would be restrict the, what you're doing on the air, make it more professional, uh, sound less and less kind of off the wall. BCN was the opposite. The, yeah. the more radical BCN got, the bigger it grew to the point where they would not take any commercial. I mean, the staff. I mean, here's something that set BCN apart. And I don't know any other station that, that can claim this commercial station. The staff decided what commercials they ran. If a thing came in for like, uh, you know, uh, pantyhose or something, we're not going to run that. It didn't run. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it really was. And because of that, it gained a respect from its listeners that they knew that if something was advertised on BCM, whether it was a clothing store or, or, uh, you know, uh, whatever it was, that, that it sort of had their, you know, seal of approval. You know, same thing for the music they played. It was, but the more it became that, the more radical it became. You know, so if you can imagine taking whatever your favorite community station is and pumping it up to 100,000 watts and letting it reach, you know, three or four states and, and imagining what, you know, what that, I mean, that was sort of, you know, the impact of it. And so I'm not saying that any one thing didn't happen somewhere else. Oh, no, was the no, and that's not my of point. Yeah. Stuff. You know. Yeah, it was a confluence of all this stuff, and then people taking notice of it and saying, "Wow, uh, it wasn't just playing rock on FM or being the first to play." What Zeppelin? It really was, and I think, in the, you know, I will throw this out there. Maybe this 
you can tell me if I'm wrong about this, but in a way, I think BCN and community radio today is the closest, you know, to what the FCC originally saw the licensing of radio stations to be for what is it, the public need, the public interest, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. I think, I mean, I think you that's can really make that what argument. I think they envisioned. Yeah, I mean, you know, our our compatriot in, in Radio Survivor, Matthew Lassar, who's the author of a couple of books on the history of the Pacifica Network, you know, and also an historian of the FCC, I think would certainly agree with many of the points that you're making there, that that is really what was, what was in the vision for broadcasting that's been slowly eroded, and in some cases not so slowly, in, in the intervening, uh, you know, 80 years that it's been regulated by the, by the FCC. Uh, you know, and mm-hmm. you know, and largely at at the at the behest of the broadcast industry itself, right? Asking for things like a public a news or public affairs requirements to be made toothless, uh, you know, and yeah. and and th- and things like this. Because um, they think that's how they make more money and be more successful. What they don't realize is that that is what people want, and that's what would really, you know, I think give them listeners well beyond. I think stations that do that know the importance of those things. Yeah, you know? absolutely. I think, you know, I'm, I'm curious to hear, you know, I think you said sort of as an offhanded comment that you were you were uh, doing your overnight show for about three years. Is that correct? Yeah, through 74. And then I went off to Brown. Okay, you went off University, to college. University worked okay. at WBRU. Yeah. I, 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 we, would, we would be remiss if we did not ask about your time at WBRU. Well, and first of all, oh. I just I just love that you were doing commercial radio like on this major station before you did college radio. That's yeah, you know, Your a very unusual radio experience was was on the biggest station in Boston. I know, very unusual story. I I, I really went out of my way just to be as like humble, and because apparently somebody later told me that everybody was had gotten together and, and thought I was going to be like full of myself and try to tell them what to do, and and I just tried to be like the opposite. And actually, by my sophomore year, I was program director. The station was entirely run by students. They had a board, but really the students ran the station. And and over the years, produced um, Christina Amapour came out of there, John Klein, who became the president of CNN, Chris Berman, the sportscaster. I mean, so many people came out of that station. It was just a great station. And it was sort of like a hybrid of a community station and a commercial station. But, you know, I was program director for a year and really tried to, you know, bring tenants of what I had learned at BCN, which is, you know, essentially to me it was always, and I think it's the same with community stations, that, you know, you have this very valuable commodity which has been given by the government and you hold it in the name of everybody that doesn't have their own station. And, you know, everybody can go on the Internet now and make a stream, or, but you're reaching a lot of people. And because not everybody can do that, you have to cover for all of them and be responsible for all of them. And, you know, uh, I took it very seriously, and it, it just breaks my heart to see what's going on more. You know, every time one of these stations goes down, it's just like, you know, it, it's to me, it's a real horrible tragedy. And so you, did you do uh, radio for the entire time that you were at Brown? You were at WBRU then? Um, I'm true. By my senior year, I started to think about sort of what other directions I wanted to go, and I ended up going to Columbia Journalism, and then I went to work for ABC News for 2020, um, and producing investigative stories, researching and producing investigative stories out of Columbia. And so I got off the radio track for a number of years. I was at ABC, 
But then in 1990, I started my own company and started doing radio again. And we won a Peabody Award for a series we did on mental health. And, you know, I, I, I just love radio. I mean, I, all things equal, you know, it's, it's my preferred medium to work in because you can do so much uh, and you really have control of so much, you know, with it. And I think it's the most intimate, you know, medium. It just really, uh, it's, a, it's a great form to work in. And what brought you back to want to make your film, WBCN and the American Revolution? Why, why did this story need to be told, and why did you feel like it needed to be told now? Well, in the mid-2000s, there was, you know, post-9-11, and the war in Iraq was going on, and there was just very little opposition uh, by those who had spoken up in the 60s to the war in Vietnam. And there were two things uh, that happened at the same time. One of them was... John Kerry had a fundraiser that was done. Um, Bruce Springsteen did a benefit for John Kerry and was criticized for being too political, for getting involved in politics. And I thought, you know, when I was younger, that would have been being too conservative to do a benefit for the Democratic Party candidate. And and then at the same time, um, you know, all this material started appearing on the Internet that I thought had been lost to the ages. Tapes, PCN had no tapes in its library, really, and a lot of them started to appear on the internet of broadcasts and missing uh, interviews, and and it, it gave me an idea of doing a film that looked at how media can create social change, and more than that, sort of the imperative of media and all of us, whether we're writers or musicians or we do radio or whatever our skills are, you know, to bring them to bear about the issues that we care about. And so I started collecting. It took a long time to find all this stuff, uh, all this material from the station and from that era that we ended up using. Tell us a little, you know, we here at Radio Survivor, um, if there's one if there's one spinoff uh, podcast or radio show that, that we're ever going to found, it's going to be entirely based on uh, radio station archives and the digging of the digging through the history of these sounds. So um, please do indulge us. Tell us a little bit about um, your search for the sounds of WBCN, this uh, this one-of-a-kind commercial radio station in Boston in the 1960s and 70s. Tell us about searching for the tapes. And images, yeah. too. It, it looks right. like you found some really interesting yeah. photographs and yeah. other materials. Yeah, no, totally. and there were no real repositories for the images. You know, individuals had their own stuff, but there, there weren't any real like archives of them. Um, what became clear was from the beginning was I didn't want to do this in the way the most... Uh, many historical documentaries are done where you interview people about what happened and then you sort of fall into the logical of the obvious things and then you find the material to show. So you go, Kent State, these four students were killed and then let's go find some pictures. You know, what I wanted to find was um, archives on the air and, and other images that were the most powerful because it seemed to me that the value of this film or the, the reason the film would work is because in the late 60s and early 70s, every major national person of note, whether they be musicians or political figures or cultural figures, crossed paths with Boston. And if they were in Boston, almost assuredly, they crossed paths with BCN in some way. And a small group of photographers that seemed to have shot everything that went on here during that period. And so this stuff was out there somewhere. And so I began to look for, in the beginning, you know, the Boston Tea Party, the club I mentioned earlier, 
where all these bands played. Are there any tapes? Are there any photos? Is there any film? Do people have, you know, uh, recollections? And, and so you start finding stuff, but it's, instead of saying like, oh, I need Led Zeppelin, it was like I would find whatever I could. And then it was almost like archaeology because, um, like, you find the toe of the dinosaur and you go, there must be other foot bones out here somewhere. You know, I'd find a tape of Led Zeppelin and it would be, are there any photos? You know, does anybody remember the night they were there and what happened? And, and, and we started clumping stuff together based on, you know, what we were able to find. And those are the things largely that made it into the film are the cases where we had the photos and the sound. And, and the one thing I think I'm most proud of in the film is it, it is all what it is. If there's a picture of somebody, you know, at a particular concert or you hear a band, that's what you're hearing. Bill Lichtenstein, tell us about finding a piece of, um, I'm going to, you know, I'm still going to fetishize uh, radio air checks. I just find that to be remarkable. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's, I mean, oh gosh, uh, Bruce Springsteen's first radio interview, he's 22, he's saying hello to his mother on the radio, was thought lost in the ages, and it just suddenly, you know, appeared on, on the internet, Patty Smith the night she... Where did it appear? Live. Like, how did you find it? Was it like on YouTube? That seems to be where a lot of things end up. The, uh, the most accessible are people make lists of stuff, like, oh, there's a tape of, but it's not the tape, it's like a list of... Uh, and then if you get into these nether worlds of collectors, mm. uh, you start to find people that, and generally they will trade like, Oh, uh, I've got this, I've got that. And, but this went on for years. And, and so eventually I would find either a place where it was on the internet or somebody would give me a copy or there was, um, I th- the other one was the night that Jerry, you know, Jerry Garcia and Dwayne Allman, uh, Grateful Dead and the Allman brothers had each played their respective gigs, one at Boston University, one at a club called The Ark. And at one in the morning, they were like, hey, we should call BCN, maybe we can go play on the air. So they came by the station at like 1.30 in the morning and played for like two hours, just got stoned on the air and played. You know, unbelievable. And that tape lost the ages. I know that the, the disc jockey involved, Charles Laquadera, said he was routinely asked over the years by the Allman Brothers if they had a copy of it and, you know, nothing and and that turned up and i started you know i was on local television stations and there were articles in the paper saying we were doing this film and i swear you know people would come to the office with like scrapbooks that were like meticulously of photographs they had saved or i remember the most like heartbreaking one was or or the most um what the word is I, i got a call from a guy who said uh you don't know me but i know about your film he said, my brother passed away last week. He was the biggest BCN fan ever. And we were cleaning out the attic in his house. And I found all these tapes that he made over the years. And the first thing I thought of was we should get them to you. And I thought, my God, this family has lost, you know, a beloved member of the family. And what could be more difficult than cleaning out somebody's house after that? And they're thinking, oh, BCN. It, I mean, the, I, I don't want to overstate this either, but I, I can say that the fanatical love that people had for that station who were around in those days, to me, I, I've never seen anything like it, except maybe, uh, you know, for something, a cultural phenomenon that's been gone for 50 years, maybe the Brooklyn Dodgers. <laughs> if you ask a Dodgers fan, you know, I... oh, my God. But people still, oh, my God, BC, you know, th- there is a emotional connection to that station. So people... A lot of them jumped through hoops to get us material that they had. 
And now, and now, what happens to that material now that you've used it in your documentary? Uh, you know, are is there is there a possibility that um, future generations will also be able to access it for for other you know for maybe maybe more academic purposes, less commercial? Have you started a no. collection or an archive? Great question. We did. It was a great question because what we saw was especially when we started looking at photographs of photographers who had passed away and their families had them in closets or in the basement or something. And we didn't just, normally you just look for the photos you want, but here's like this whole life collection. So working with UMass Amherst, uh, we started a collection, which has now grown considerably. All of Dan Ellsberg's papers are now there in the same, under the same roof. But um, it's uh, all going up online. We've got uh, photographs of three or four major photographers from the era. Peter Simon, who was Carly Simon's brother, passed away recently. Jeff Albertson. All these tapes. Um, and there's also a stream which is going online soon where we're going to be able to play uh, all of this material in, in um, you know, random so you can listen to stuff. But, but the hope is for everything to be up fully. I think they've got 20,000 pictures online right now. If you go to Google UMass and WBCN, I think it will come up. It's called the American Revolution Collection. We'll have that up in our show notes. Yeah, we'll be sure that people can find that in our show notes. Go to RaiderSurvivor.com oh, slash podcast. Thank you. And uh, we'll make sure that people have an easy link to it because uh, I know – I can speak, I think, for all three of us that we're all excited to dig in and find out what's there and <laughs> take a listen and a look ourselves. Yeah, and I'm certain our, our listeners, uh, many of our listeners will want to do so as well. Uh, Bill Lichtenstein, uh, your documentary is called WBCN and the American Revolution. And I understand that uh, you are scheduling screenings around the country in cooperation with community radio stations. And I know that right now we're all still uh, sheltering in place mostly with the uh, with the pandemic, but that you do expect to have some going on later on in the year. Yeah, we we actually had scheduled about a dozen more and then had to be canceled. But um, the film played for about a year in festivals around the country. And then we started a theatrical rollout in theaters around the country. And as part of that, in each city, we would approach, if there was one, a community station um, and ask if they wanted to partner with us on it, which meant simply, uh, you know, we were uh, splitting uh, our proceeds with the station and making a donation of, of the ticket, uh, you know, revenue to the station. Uh, and in turn, it gave them a chance to come uh, to screenings and talk about the station and, you know, their mission and, um, you know, also hopefully get some press around their work and the screening. And it, it's just, it, it, it's been working out incredibly well. And so we've done a number of them. We had one with WFMU that had to be canceled. There was another one, um, I'm forgetting now where the other ones were, but anyway, they they will be uh, rescheduled hopefully as soon as the uh, the, the shelter in place lifts, uh, and um, you know people will be able to see these uh, films. We also want to reach out to stations, you know, directly. So anybody who has a radio station and they're interested in doing some sort of screening of the film uh, in their community and um, you know being a partner in these screenings, let us know. Um, you know, because we'd like to do this really through the fall, you know, summer and fall, uh, and and help support uh, community stations because because it really is, you know, it, it's I think the the um, it's a living, breathing legacy of this whole thing. 
yeah, are, are all these amazing community stations around the country. Bill Lichtenstein, what is the best way for folks uh, at, at stations to get in touch with you? Sure, they can go to the website, which is theamericanrevolution.fm, theamericanrevolution.fm. The American Revolution was the tagline of the station in its early days, which mentioned in the film. Uh, or my uh, our corporate email, you can uh, send it uh, to us. Is It's LCM, uh, like Lichtenstein Creative Media, LCM, like Mary, at lcmedia.com. And um, we'll get right back to you. It's, and they're very easy to do. We I was surprised. And I think radio stations are just used to doing these kinds of events. So they've come together very quickly. And it's really just a win-win for everybody. Um, you know, and particularly to be able to get some discussion going about the importance of community radio, which really is the mission of the film. I mean, the mission of the film is to really make the point of how uh, media can create social, political cultural change and, and I think um, you know particularly community stations and Bill I also understand that uh, you anticipate a public uh, television run for the film as well so if, if folks are not lucky enough to be able to see a screening with their local community radio station uh, they will be able to see it on public television yes later this year and then followed everything's now pushed down because of the uh, what do we call this the, the viral the pandemic crisis, the, I don't know <laughs> pandemic um but but everything's been pushed down so hopefully if things move along at the rate that starting to sound like they should then later this year uh public tv and then home video and can get it through amazon and the other usual outlets um Right. Well, if you keep us uh, up to date, we'll make sure to keep Radio Survivor listeners and readers up to date. Uh, They can find more, of course, at radiosurvivor.com. Bill uh, Lichtenstein joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. You are the filmmaker behind WBCN and the American Revolution. Thank you so much for spending some time with us and our listeners. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure, and um, I hope you all are well and be safe. My thanks again to Bill Lichtenstein for joining us today on Radio Survivor. It was a pleasure. Thank you for sharing your stories with us and your passion for your radio station, WBC. And if you missed any part of today's program, you can listen to it again as a podcast or online at radiosurvivor.com or anywhere where you get your radio on demand. You can get us on the Apple uh, podcast store. You can get us on Stitcher. You can get us on TuneIn. You can get us on Spotify. Radio Survivor is a non-commercial and listener-supported medium. If you want to find out more how to support the work, you can look us up at radiosurvivor.com slash support. We always love to hear from listeners. You can check us out on any of the social medias at Radio Survivor or email us. Our email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. On behalf of Jennifer Waits and Paul Reesman-Dell, my name is Eric Klein. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.